It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the New Year's Eve 2009 edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for being a part of it tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Jacob, great to be with you. But i got to tell you, we're not going to do this anymore this year. This is the last time. This is the last time we're going to do this this year. I've got other news for you. We're not going to do it till midnight either. We're not going to see the new year tonight. Right. We're we're not going to do that. But uh, we are uh, happy to have the opportunity to study the Bible with you tonight on this uh, New Year's Eve. Yeah, and we're glad for those who are listening. We've got a pretty good audience already assembling around their computers, and we look forward to a good period of Bible study as we do every Thursday night. Uh, on the virtual Bible study. The number to call to be a part of the program tonight. Why not end the year on a good note? Give us a call at 877 381 4567 or send an email to questions at collegeview.com or join in with other listeners in the chat room tonight. Follow the instructions on your screen if you're viewing us from Ustream.tv tonight. We look forward to hearing from you, any of those in Medium tonight. And get on our update list. Uh, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Tell us to put you on, put your address on our update list. Jacob, I've been finding out from several people who used to be getting our updates that they're not getting them, and they're still on our mailing list. And so what's pretty obviously happening, and because we've been doing this for a while, I think some spam filters are picking up our, our emails and knocking them out of line. Check your spam settings. Check your spam folder. You may find us in there. If you used to be getting our updates and you're not getting them anymore, we have not purged our mailing list, so it's probably on your end. Okay, so if you have problems with that, check into that so that you can get our updates. Uh, mentioned You mentioned the updates. Uh, for those who are new listeners, uh, you can uh, join in uh, and get a sneak peek at the topic planned for discussion on Thursday uh, afternoons, you send out uh, an, a reminder for the, the program once a week, and we usually and we try to also put that update, uh, at least a brief version of that update, out on Twitter on Thursday afternoons. And you can find us on Twitter at VBS Questions. Look for VBS Questions uh, when you go to Twitter. All right, and so this will be the last program for 2009, and you may. Uh, rather than sending in a question or comment tonight, maybe you could send in the suggestion for some things that you'd like to have discussed next year, the 2010 version of the Virgil Bible Study. Maybe you've got suggestions on things that would make the program better. Uh, if you have any suggestion, we'd like to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts. Send an email and give us your suggestion. Interesting topic planned for tonight, Dad. We want to talk tonight about alleged Bible contradictions. As we mentioned uh, to our update list, a lot of skeptics and doubters just dismiss the Bible completely by saying it's so full of contradictions, how could it possibly be the inerrant word of God? Uh, and and they make that claim just sort of out of hand. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't believe a thing it says. That's their, that's their reaction. We want to deal with that accusation. As Bible believers and as people who put lots of confidence and faith in the Scriptures and try to live our lives by it, it's important for us uh, they may make the the charge sort of casually without much thought. It's important for us to put thought into dealing with any alleged contradictions in the Bible. Because if you can if you can sustain a contradiction in the Bible, we got a, we got a problem. If it's if it's 
inspired by the by God, and yet it's got contradictions in it, then we, we'd be in a sort of a mess. Well, that's fundamental. If God inspired it, then there won't be any contradictions. And those who would not like to believe the Bible understand that. And they are looking very hard to find contradictions. That's right. They know that if they could prove a contradiction, they could put a put a real dent in our armor. And so they're they're working hard at it. I've got a, a newspaper article that I clipped out a while back. It's been a good while back because this guy is dead now. Steve Allen, well known comedian, um, he wrote a lot of books, and one of his books was the Bible, religion, and morality. He was not a believer, and here's what he said. He said the Bible contains so many inaccuracies, impossibilities, contradictions, and morally repulsive going on, morally repulsive goings on, that to claim divine inspiration and inerrancy for the entire collection is absurd. There's a small group of strict conservative fundamentalists who interpret almost every word of the Scripture inerrantly. But I consider them in the same intellectual category as those who are honestly convinced that the earth is flat. There is scarcely a page on the Bible of the Bible. There is scarcely a page of the Bible on which an open mind does not perceive a contradiction, an unlikely story, an obvious error, an historical impossibility of one sort or another, so that the intelligence finally is no longer able to accommodate the absurd prejudice that the Bible is totally without error. He goes on to say he's not an atheist. He assumes that God exists, but he bases his criticism of the Bible on the assumption that it's full of errors. so anyway, that's that's Steve Allen. He's dead now. He may uh, he's a believer in the Bible. Yeah, now. I think he's become a believer since that article was written. But that that's sort of typical of the kind of thing we're talking about, Jacob. How people will attack and criticize the Bible, and they can do it. You know, it's just it's sort of like they can just sit back and lob bombs. That they don't have to really be accurate or careful. We, on the other hand, feel duty bound to carefully analyze any objection is made to the Bible and try to prove that it is what it claims to be, the Word of God. All right, that's right. They can uh, they can make their claims without any proof. They just make the claims and they stand. And uh, then the burden of proof is on us, where the burden of proof should be on the one who's making the challenge. And so uh, it, there is an inconsistency there. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com as we talk about Bible apparent uh, Bible discrepancies on the program tonight. Have uh, done some reading uh, from Dan Barker, who is an atheist that we interviewed, I guess, probably a year and a half ago on our program, and he makes similar uh, obnoxious claims. He claims that Jesus was not, he doesn't even believe Jesus ever existed. And he says, because no historical account mentions Jesus. Again, that's, not, that's really not true. It's not true, and it's just, a, it's just a, a, an absurd claim he makes without proof, and it stands for those who are challenging For instance, we know that the, the Jewish historian Josephus definitely spoke about the existence of a man named Jesus. So that statement, that's typical, Jacob. That's that's making these statements without basis. I mean, they can throw out anything. Right. You know, and, and, and they do that. They just throw a lot of mud on the wall and see how much will stick. They don't really care. Right. Uh, that's, that, that's sort of like happens in politics, you know, where you can whisper a smear against a, a, an opposing politician with the hope that someone will pick that up and run with it there's no basis for it, but it, it could it could do damage to his reputation, and therefore they do and it. And those who want to believe that the Bible is not true will believe the the rumor, and uh, and and that's all the proof that they need. Exactly right. So let us hear your thoughts on the program tonight over the phone, over email, or in the chat room tonight. We look forward to hearing from you, Jacob. We to our update list. Uh, the first question we sent out is: What simple rules 
can you suggest that will help resolve potential Bible contradictions? So that's where we want to start. Are there some rules that we could apply that would help us in dealing with these supposed contradictions of the Bible? I think the problem is a lot of people don't really understand what constitutes a true contradiction. Um, a mere difference of, of two statements, they may be different, but they're not necessarily contradictory. And that's what we sort of want to, to uh, examine here for a few minutes. For instance, if I was going to make the statement to you, Jacob, John is rich, John is poor. Now, if I said that, it might appear to be contradictory at first hearing. John is rich, John is poor. But if you stop to think about that for a minute, it might be that I'm talking about two different people named John. And so the statement wouldn't be contradictory, though it might appear to be a contradiction at first at first blush. It's not a contradiction when you find out I'm actually talking about two different guys who are named John. Mm-hmm. One is rich, one is poor. Or it might be that I'm talking about the same person, but I'm talking about in different time periods. Maybe when he was young, he was very poor. When he was older, he'd become a wealthy man. So I could say John is or was rich, John is or was poor. And so I got they're not contradictions. When you do a little investigating, you find out they're not contradictions. Or... Here's yet another possibility. I might be talking about different aspects or different senses. Maybe John is rich in material things, but he's very poor spiritually. He doesn't have a good spiritual life. Same guy, but he's rich in one aspect and poor in another. It wouldn't be a contradiction then. And so there would be a lot of possible ways to resolve what might on the surface appear to be a contradiction in a simple statement like John is rich, John is poor. Then that those who are looking for contradictions though will just make a very cursory reading of of the text and then look for the literal uh, you know on the surface where they could find some place where there'd be a contradiction without getting to the true meaning of the text. And so what you mentioned there is we need to get into the scriptures and see what they're actually saying when we see a potential contradiction. And that's right. And anytime there's a potential contradiction it only takes one feasible explanation to resolve the contradiction. There be there may be multiple possible explanations, but you really only need one. When someone poses a potential contradiction in the scripture, all you have to do is come up with one feasible explanation to resolve that that uh, possible contradiction. Fact fact is, just as in the illustration we just mentioned, there may be multiple possible. And that's the way that it, proceedings work in a courtroom as well. The, the defense attorney doesn't have to give every potential uh, explanation, just as long as there's one that's plausible. Yeah, one that works. And, th- and then there, uh, there is a reasonable doubt uh, that uh, the, the prosecution's uh, testimony is not true. That's right. You know, it's not legitimate to assume there is a, a, a real contradiction until every possible means of harmonization has been exhausted. You you need to look at every possible way that this could be resolved, and none of them work before you just uh, finally say, well, that is a contradiction. Now, we believe that in regards to the Bible, if you will be honest and and do that exercise, you're not going to end up with any contradictions. Because we believe the Bible is inspired, and if it is inspired, it will be inerrant. So let us know your thoughts. At 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Have you come across apparent Bible contradictions, and where did you find uh, the harmonization 
between those contradictions. Let us know your thoughts tonight. Looks like they're quiet in the chat room right now, Jacob. Some of you might want to jump in there in the chat room and uh, uh, get involved in sort of a, a side conversation or study as we go along here tonight. I know there's a for a lot of our listeners, there's probably a big football game going on right about now, and so we may we may have some of those people trying to watch the football game out of one one view and then looking at their computer on the other side to try and keep up with the virtual Bible. So that might be hard to do. But uh, we're our, our our audience is a little bit low tonight. But uh, you know, still in the chat in, room, if you want to do me a favor, you might throw a score in there every once in a while in the chat room. Uh, uh, <laughs> All right, let's let's start with the let's start with we we ask for some rules. What simple rules could you suggest that would help resolve potential Bible contradictions? First of all, let's let's say that you need to be careful to be sure that the same person or thing is under consideration i heard i heard an example along this line jacob once where a fellow was just sure he'd come up with a contradiction in the bible and it had to do with the ark he and he read in genesis 6 about the dimensions of noah's ark of course that was enormous Uh, it was 450 feet long and uh, uh, 75 feet wide 30 feet tall Uh, it must have weighed hundreds of tons made out of wood and then he read in joshua chapter 3 where the priest carried the ark across the Jordan River on their shoulders. And he said, that's an obvious contradiction. There's no way anybody could carry that ark on their shoulders. Well, that's right. The problem is two different arks. One was Noah's ark. The other was the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was easily carried on men's shoulders. And so, uh, again, that just illustrates the point. We've got to make sure the same things are being discussed. Well, then that that's an obvious joke, but... People are making similar claims about contradictions that where if you were to know what the, the context was talking about, it would seem just as ludicrous as someone claiming that there was a contradiction between the ark, Noah's ark and the ark of the covenant. So yeah. uh, these are these are a lot of silly uh, accusations many times. Here's here's a here's a more legitimate one, though, Jacob. A lot of times and we've dealt with this on the virtual Bible study, the question of, of what part does works have to do with our salvation and. A lot of times when people say there are no works or or works are not involved in a man's salvation, they will reference Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says our salvation is not of works. But then in James chapter 2, verses 24 and 26, it says you see that how then... By works a man is justified and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And some people may say, well, there's a contradiction. Paul said in Ephesians 2, it's not by works. James said in chapter 2, it is by works. How do we resolve that? Well, the answer is you've got to understand that different kinds of works are in discussion in those two different passages. Correct. And, you know, while we're on the subject of contradictions, we also ought to make the point that any interpretation that you have that forces a contradiction cannot be true. If the Bible doesn't have any contradictions, uh, this is not a contradiction because two different works are being mentioned. But some would force a contradiction by saying it's the same works that are mentioned in both passages and simply it is not. That's right. Ephesians 2 is talking about works of merit. It even says the kind of works that a man could boast about. There are no such works that will save you. There are no meritorious works that can accomplish a man's salvation. 
But there are works of obedience that demonstrate our faith, and that's what James was talking about in James 2. So they're different kinds of works. It's those two statements are not contradictory when you understand the context in which they are spoken. All right, we need to take a break, and when we get back from the break, we'll continue the discussion. If you're just joining us on the program, we're talking about apparent and alleged Bible contradictions. What do you think? Does the Bible contradict itself? If you have any comments, we'd like to hear from you on the phone tonight, over the email, or in the chat room. Join in the discussion. Take this time during the break to get your thoughts together. We'll be right back after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. I'm Joel Gwynn, a member of the College View Church of Christ with something for you to think about regarding our children. A survey published in the periodical Pulpit Helps analyzed the question of faithfulness among the children of churchgoers. The results are interesting. It was found that faithfulness in kids was not a function of the size of the congregation, the number of classes and special programs sponsored by the church, the effectiveness of the youth minister. Instead, here is what was discovered. In cases where both parents were faithful, and active, 93% of their children remained faithful to their religious training. When only one parent was faithful and active, the percentage dropped to 73%. When parents were only reasonably active, attended services, but that's all, their kids remained faithful only 53% of the time. And finally, when the parents attended the assemblies only infrequently, the children's endured at a mere 6% level. The results of this survey are interesting, but not terribly surprising. We've known all along that people, including children, often learn more from example than from the words they hear. That's why Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5:16. Parents, have you considered applying Jesus' concept right there in your own home? Are you letting your light shine before your kids? Survey results. Our own common sense and the Bible tells us that this is the only hope that we have to bring them up fearing God. Hi, I'm Anthony Petrochko, a member of the College View Church of Christ. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. We want to remind you that our website, www.collegeview.com or www.thevirtualbiblestudy.com, has lots of valuable study tools available for your use. First, you can find archives of all our past programs there. We've covered a wide variety of topics, including doctrinal issues, moral and ethical questions, and many things related to living daily as a Christian. And while we don't have a search engine option on our website, Website, remember that you can hit Control F and type in a keyword. You'll then see that keyword highlighted on the page. For instance, if you hit Control F and typed in the word worship, you'd find these past programs that we've conducted. Does it matter how we worship? What about contemporary worship and hand clapping? Our worship pleasing to God or pleasing to man? And instrumental music in worship? That's just an example, but you get the idea as to how the web page can be used to help in your study of various subjects. Also remember that we have copies of our church bulletin on the website, and these bulletins include articles on hundreds of topics. You'll also find some recorded sermons, some Bible tracts, as well as information about the College View Church. So be sure to check out the valuable resources on our website. Again, the address is collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And thanks again for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Be sure to tell others. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the Virtual Bible Study. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad you're a part of the program. We want to hear from you on the program via email, via the phone, or in the chat room tonight. If you're just joining us, we're talking about alleged Bible contradictions. How do we 
deal with those who would make uh, alleged contra- uh, claims that the Bible contradicts itself. We begin, again, believe that the Bible does not contradict itself because we believe it has a divine origin. We believe it's inspired by God, that every word is there because God wanted it to be there. And so how do we uh, deal with those who would make uh, uh, accusations that the Bible contradicts itself? And I want to tell you, if you're a Christian, you probably have already dealt with this. If you haven't dealt with it yet, you're going to deal with it because people who don't want to believe the Bible are going to throw this up to us. They they understand, as you said earlier, Jacob, this is a great way to attack our faith. They know if they can prove a contradiction in the Bible, they can destroy our faith. And so they've worked through the centuries. They've worked very hard to try and scratch around in the Bible and find some shred of a contradiction because they know just how important that is. And as we get into the program, we want to, if time permits, get into some claims that we mentioned Dan Barker earlier, the well-known atheist. He makes several claims about contradictions regarding the resurrection account because he understands that if he can show that the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is destroyed. Put those two things together, the resurrection and a contradiction in the Bible about the resurrection, and that would be a powerful oh, you double whammy. Just throw the Bible away and burn it yeah, while you're at yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll, we'll get into some of those alleged contradictions uh, and how we deal with them. We'll sort of put into practice what we're talking about here at the beginning of the program on how to deal with the alleged contradictions. All right, so the first rule we talked about, Jacob, was make sure the same person or thing is under consideration. The second rule is make sure the same time frame is referenced. Because, you know, a thing could be true at one point in time, and then it could it, it, it would be different. In, in other words, I might say, Jacob's got a brand new car. And at some time later, I could say, Jacob is driving an old jalopy. Same car. Might be the same car separated by a number of years in time, yeah. right? So we got to make sure that the time frame is the same. For instance, here's an example from Genesis. And there's just a few, a few chapters apart. Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw that everything that he had made, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything God made was good. But then in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Was that a contradiction? No. When we understand that those two passages are separated by the fall of man, sin entering into the world, and actually are also separated by hundreds of years in time. So it was true initially when God made everything, it was very good. But then over the course of time, as man sinned and brought sin into the world, things got very bad. So it's not a contradiction. It, right. it might appear to be a contradiction. If you just read those two verses without some context around them, it might appear to be a contradiction. So those who were straining for uh, apparent contradiction would maybe use something like that as obvious as that to say, look, there's a contradiction. But when we look at the context and realize, talking about two different times, we see that it is not. Here's one, and and you said we might want to look to some accusations that Dan Marker made about the resurrection. Here's here's kind of a classic example of a contradiction about the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, says it was the third hour and they crucified him. But then in John 19, beginning at verse 14, it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth to a place called uh, the place of the skull, which is in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. So Mark says they crucified him in the third hour. And John says it was the sixth hour and he wasn't even on the cross yet. So what do we, how, how do we answer that? Well, you got to understand, Mark was keeping time as the Jews do. And John was keeping time as the Romans did. Romans kept time the way we do. 
But the Jews, of course, had their hours of the day. Six o'clock was the zero hour in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning was the third hour of the day. Noon was the sixth hour of the day. So Mark is talking Jewish time. The third hour of the day, they crucified him. Well, that was nine o'clock in the morning. Therefore, that would not be a contradiction with what John says, that at the sixth hour, he wasn't yet on the cross. That would be six o'clock in the morning. At six o'clock in the morning, he wasn't on the cross yet. By nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour of Jewish time was when they crucified him. No contradiction. When we understand two different means of timekeeping are being used by those two different authors. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. So we'd have to make sure we're talking about the same period of time and we're using the same method of timekeeping to make sure that we don't have a discrepancy. Exactly right. All right. Uh, so two, there's two rules. Again, we're talking about you've got to look at all these possibilities. When we want to resolve a potential contradiction, look at all these possibilities. Number three, third rule, make sure that words are used in the same sense. Especially here, what we're talking about is the difference between a figurative usage of a word and a literal usage of the word of a word. Um, for instance, here, here's here's an, another example from the Bible. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, and he said, If you will receive it, this John is Elias, which was for to come. Or Elias, that's King James, Elijah. Mm-hmm. So Jesus said, John is Elijah. But when the Jews asked John himself in John chapter 1, verse 19, it says, this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So John said, I'm not Elias. Jesus said, John is Elias. We got a contradiction? You could have a contradiction if you just read this at a, you know, a cursory reading and you wanted to find a contradiction. You could say, well, there is a contradiction, but we understand that Jesus was talking in a figurative sense while John was talking literally, and we find that it simply is not a contradiction. That's right. It's not a contradiction. John, uh, Jesus was speaking figuratively in the same sense that Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 had predicted that Elijah or Elias would precede the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is that Elijah. That He's Malachi the fulfillment is. of the figurative yeah. prophecy. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, John's own father, Zacharias, uh, had, had indicated that that was the truth about this child, John the Baptist, that he was the Elijah to come. That's figurative. He was to come in the, the, the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was a prophet, but he wasn't literally Elijah. And that's what John himself was talking about when the Jews said, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah resurrected? Come back to life. And he said, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not like that. No contradiction when we understand that in one time, at one instance, it, the, the word was being, the name was being used figuratively and another it was being used literally. Just got to understand that. And if, you, if we take the time to look carefully at the passages, we'll be able to see that. The number to call, 877-381-4567. The email address, questions at collegeview.com. That information scrolling across the bottom of your screen. If you're watching us on Ustream.tv or join in the chat room, that instruction on how to get to the chat room is also on the bottom of your screen at Ustream.tv. You just sign in there. 
Uh, you'll need a username tonight, as we do uh, not have the ability to turn off the moderation as of yet. And so you'll need a username if you'd like to comment in the chat room tonight, which is silent. So, um, yeah, this is the quietest. I mean, we've got no chatting going on. We haven't had that in a long time. I think people must be occupied with some other New Year's Eve sort of things. Uh, so. It could be. Maybe we're, maybe we're getting uh, d- a divided attention here. Yeah, and I haven't even seen a ball game score either yet. So. Well, you're, you're not, you don't have divided attention, do you? <laughs> no, no. Okay. All right, we're talking about alleged contradictions. We'll take this week's bullet point uh, break now, a little bit ahead of schedule, but we'll take it. It'll give us more time the other break to get into other ways that we can deal with alleged contradictions. We'd like to hear from you. 877-381-4567. Questions at college. Well, they're listening in the chat room tonight. Sharon and Kent, are they, they have their ears uh, perked up tonight. They're listening. So thank you guys for commenting on the program tonight. We'll be right back after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Experts who study the world's population have concluded that there were about 200 million people living during the lifetime of Jesus. Now, that's a lot of people, but relatively speaking, it's a fairly small number. For instance, in the United States alone, there are presently over 300 million residents If you want to talk about some really big numbers, think about this. By 1850, the world's population had grown to 1 billion. That's five times more than lived in Jesus' day. But wait, just one century later, in 1950, there were 2.5 billion people on earth. And there's more. Sometime during 1987, just 37 years later, the five billionth person was born on planet earth. Now, that's a truly big number. Today, estimates place the world's population at somewhere between 6 and 7 billion and growing. One more fact may help us put all this in proper perspective. Over half of the people who have ever lived on earth are still living today. That's right. Think of it this way. If you added up all the people who have lived and died throughout all of history, the number would be smaller than the number of people who are alive and breathing right now. Our purpose in discussing these numbers is not to frighten you about food shortages, overcrowding, pollution, and so forth. There may be reason for alarm in these areas, but we have something much more serious in mind. Think of the incredible responsibility before us in teaching lost souls the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it an impossible task? No. Imagine this. Assume you are the only Christian in the world, and it takes you a full year to make one convert. Then each convert proceeds to do the same thing, converting another person each following year. In just slightly over 33 years, the entire world would be one for Christ. And that's if each Christian just converts one other person each year. Certainly not an impossible task. Proverbs 11 verse 30 says, He that winneth souls is wise. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Welcome back into the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad that you're a part of the program. Looking forward to hearing from you during our discussion tonight as we discuss alleged Bible contradictions. Uh, we've heard from the chat room tonight. The chat room has chimed in. They've made their presence known. And they've also and, updated the score. Well, and uh, we also um, know that... Uh, Sharon has sent in a note. She says just because someone doesn't know the answer doesn't mean it isn't in the Bible. Yeah, that's a good point. 
someone throws up a possible contradiction to you, even if you can't explain it right off the top of your head. And I, I to tell you, I've got a book, uh, John Haley. It's a kind of a classic reference work. He, 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 it's called Alleged Contradictions of the Bible. And it are hundreds of different things that people have suggested through the centuries as potential uh, contradictions in the Bible. Haley did a good work. Uh, you may, if you don't have that in your library, you may look for it, alleged Bible contradictions or alleged contradictions of the Bible by John Haley. But the, the, the fact of it is any given person, no matter how well studied you are, may not be able to answer if someone throws up something just out of the blue you know, that you never thought of before. You may not have a, an answer off the, you know, just off the cuff that you can give. But that doesn't prove that the contradiction stands. Given enough time and with the opportunity to do a little searching and studying, you probably can resolve that. Somebody has uh, at one time or another because no no alleged contradiction of the Scriptures has ever stood the test. All right. Uh, thank you for your comment, Sharon. And uh, she looks like Sharon has invited a couple First-time listeners to the program, Alan and Amanda are out tonight, Great. out there tonight. So Great. thank you guys for being there. We're glad to hear from you on the program. 877-381-4567 is the number. It's toll-free. And finish out the year uh, on a good note, call the virtual Bible study. Yeah. Uh, we're working our way through some rules, Jacob, that we can use whenever. Yeah, the first one you said, make sure we're talking about the same person or thing. Second rule you said was make sure we're talking about the same time frame, either the same actual time or we're using the same same time reference time same time scale and then the third is to make the way sure that the words are used in the same sense figurative versus literal all right here's one more rule remember that opposites are not always contradictory now that sounds contradictory doesn't it that sounds like an oxymoron (laughs) yeah but for instance if if i were to make the statement god is a loving god and then in just a moment, I made the statement, God hates. Is that a contradiction? God loves and God hates? No, not necessarily. Uh, and I think it's it's easy to prove that it's not a contradiction. For instance, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. He, he sent his Son as a sacrifice for the world. But... For instance, in a passage like Malachi 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. And that putting away means divorce. God hates divorce. It's not a contradiction if we take time to understand what subject is under consideration. God loves some things, but other things he hates. Psalms 119, verse 104, he hates every false way. So God hates. He's a loving God, but he hates certain things. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 7, God loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. Romans 11, verse 22, God responds with goodness and severity. Those are not contradictions. They just are simply descriptive of two different responses of God to different things. All right. All right. We got a phone call. We do have a phone call. We're going to go out to Oregon tonight and welcome. I believe he's a legendary hunter. Guillermo is on the phone tonight. Hello, Guillermo. Welcome to the program. Hey, Jacob. How are you doing? Good. Uh, you are a legendary hunter, aren't you? Yeah, a hunter that never gets anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, join the crowd, Guillermo. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to be here tonight. Uh, Thanks for calling. Because of weather, we uh, had to cancel our uh, Spanish uh, midweek services, so I was able to hear you today. Well, good. Good deal. Good. Hadn't heard from you for a while. Everything going good in Oregon? 
Uh, so far, so good. We're doing pretty good, except that, uh, like I said, the weather made us uh, cancel our, our midweek Spanish service. So. Are you getting some snow out there? Uh, we got some, and uh, it was pretty uh, pretty heavy, but uh, right now it's pretty clearing clearing up now, but there's still a lot of slush. So uh, rather than risking some of the uh, members to get here, uh, some of them come from an hour away, so we decided to just cancel it. Great, great. Well, it's good to hear from you, and we're glad that everything's going good for you out there in the West Coast. What's What's on your mind tonight? I always had fun with uh, teasing Christians uh, uh, because everybody, when you talk about Jesus, uh, most of the time uh, Hebrews uh, recalls of how he never uh, uh, committed no sin or knew no sin. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 makes the same statement. But there's a passage in John that I always have fun because the, uh, the bewildered face that uh, Brethren put when I ask him, uh, first John, in John chapter 5, verse 18, John 5, verse 18, uh, the King James Version says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but also said, uh, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So I always ask him, okay, well, the statement there says he broke the Sabbath. Uh, so uh, how would you answer that? And, and I, I have a way of answering it, but I, I usually try to be just uh, the devil's advocate and see what uh, the brethren would respond. So what would you guys say on that verse? Well, I'd, li- I'd like to hear your answer, but I'm going to say my answer to that is going to be that the Jews, he broke the Sabbath rules of the Jews, the, their man-made ordinances. He didn't break God's ordinances. That's how I would approach that. And I'd also throw in there that if he did break the Sabbath, then he also uh, was guilty of blasphemy because they made both accusations against him. Yeah, this is what the Jews were accusing him of, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, a true or accurate charge. Exactly. I, I, I think that uh, what he actually broke there was uh, the Jews had cushioned themselves so much so they wouldn't break the law that they actually were breaking God's law, and that's what they were accusing Jesus of, uh, having broken their tradition right. uh, for not breaking the Sabbath. But uh, it, it's one of those things that's easily to explain, you know, as, as you just uh, mentioned there. But uh, if brethren are not prepared, sometimes they'll look at it and scratch their head and say, well, I don't know. And they might think, well, there is a contradiction here because we've always been taught that Jesus uh, did never violate God's law. But, uh, you know, you have to look at the context. Uh, the chapters there has been, uh, they've been accusing Jesus of healing on the Sabbath, and that's what they, they were saying, this is breaking the Sabbath. And that's what the passage is talking about. So very easy to answer, but, you know, when you get somebody perhaps uh, uh, that hasn't really come across this verse or hasn't really studied this verse, uh, sometimes they'll have that look of shock that, oh, I've never seen this. How can I answer this? Well, you make, you make a more broad uh, rule, though, there, Guillermo. We need to make sure that when we see something in the Scriptures, before we c- conclude that there is a contradiction, make sure that the person who's speaking that is inspired. There are a lot of untruths that are in the Bible, things that were written by people who were not inspired, sinful men who were bringing in their misunderstandings in the Scriptures. Yeah, that's right. And so this was an accusation made against Jesus by people who themselves were sinful and were were uh, actually falsely accusing him. You know, this is sort of like, uh, I remember in Matthew chapter 27, uh, the Jews went to Pilate after Jesus had died and they, you know, they were trying to get him to guard the tomb, if you remember, Guillermo. And they said, sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Well, th- this says that Jesus was a deceiver. 
But you have to take into account who said that. It right. was the Jews who said it, and and they and and they of course themselves were were the liars in that matter. Yeah, and and, and that's why it's very important for us to always consider the context, what's going on, and in the case of John chapter five, it's very easy to explain if you look at what they were accusing him was breaking their traditions rather than breaking the law of God. Exactly uh, right. And and uh, so that's important, you know, to everybody, you know, make sure the context, and also uh, as you are. Look at other passages. The Bible doesn't com- uh, contradict itself, it rather complements itself. There's a lot of information that John, for example, gives concerning the crucifixion that uh, neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke uh, gives. And uh, Luke actually gives uh, a lot more information that we don't receive either through Matthew, Mark, or John. Uh, and yet it's not contradicting, actually it's just complementing uh, uh, what uh, the other inspired writers uh, have penned down. So it's it's... Context is always important. Context is always important to uh, uh, for us to understand uh, the scriptures. Exactly right. We appreciate your call, Guillermo. Thanks for listening out there in Oregon. Hey, thanks a lot. You guys got a good show today. Thank Thanks. you. Good to hear from you. Bye-bye. And hopefully next year will be a good one, too. You Thank too. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-381-4567 is the number that Guillermo called, and the line is open and ready for your call as well. We appreciate Guillermo giving us a call from the other side of the continent tonight. Real quickly, Jacob, I want to give a fifth rule, and I think if uh, Guillermo sort of touched on your rule. Yeah, he sort of did. Uh, To resolve potential contradictions in the Bible, you got to recognize the difference between something that's a contradiction versus something that is supplemental information. In other words, two statements may not be the same, but they may not necessarily contradict. They may simply supplement one another. For instance, Jacob, if I were to say... I have three sons to one person, and to another person I say I have no sons at all. That'd be a contradiction. That both those things can't be true. But if I, if, if many who know me would understand this illustration, if I were to say to one person I have three sons, and then I would say to another person I have one daughter, those are not contradictory statements. They are supplemental, and actually, if you put them together, you get the total. I have three sons and one daughter, and that'd be a true statement. Both statements are true. They're different, but true, and they supplement one another. And a lot of times, especially when we're reading the gospel accounts about the life of Jesus, we have to take that into consideration because you got four authors, and the, the four statements don't necessarily contradict. They supplement each other. And so we need to approach it that way. Exactly right. Uh, certainly. Uh, and we'll maybe get into that a little bit later as we get into the. Let, the, let me the give session. you one quick example of what I'm talking about here, Jacob. But in the in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's the story about Jesus doing a miracle. In, in in the in the particular miracle under consideration, he healed a blind man or two blind men. Yeah, I'm not going to take time to read them. It's Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 18. Matthew says there were two men, and Jesus healed them of blindness as he was leaving Jericho. Mark says there was one man that he healed as he was leaving Jericho. Luke says there was one man, but he was drawing near to Jericho. He wasn't leaving Jericho. And boy, I mean, you you read that first time, and you're really scratching your head. How can you come up with an explanation of that? There is an explanation. For instance, first of all, the number of people involved. Sometimes when we describe things, we make reference only maybe to the principal spokesman or the one that you dealt with more directly. For instance, if I were to say to you, Jacob, 
I saw John and Joe at the Walmart store today. And then later I'm talking to someone and I said, I saw John at Walmart today. Those are not contradictory statements. Maybe John's the one that I mainly talked to. Joe was there. And I, so I could say I saw John and Joe both, but I might mention to someone else, I just saw John. Those wouldn't be contradictory statements, right? I'd be talking about the one I most principally dealt with. I think that's the case here, why, why Matthew mentions two, but Mark and Luke only mentions one man in, in regards to who Jesus healed. Not necessarily contradictory. Right. Now, M- Matthew and Mark say he was leaving Jericho. Luke says he was drawing near to Jericho. There were two different towns by the name of Jericho. One was the Old Testament Jericho, and another was the city of Jericho that had been constructed by Herod the king. And so when you understand that there were two different burgs there close by one another, which both went by the name of Jericho, Jesus was leaving one and approaching the other when this healing took place. No contradiction. The contradiction melts away when you get all the information out there. All right. And so uh, some good rules that we've discussed. We'll get your emails on the other side of the break, and then we may get into, if we have enough time, some of the alleged contradictions regarding the resurrection that uh, Dan Barker makes. We'll get into those hopefully as time permits. So don't go anywhere. Lots of ground to cover right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College View Church of Christ. Do you have a question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931-381-4567. Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we will do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we're back on the program tonight. Thank you for spending your New Year's Eve with us. We're glad you're part of the program. We look forward to hearing from you. phone line is open. The emails are coming in, and uh, as well as the chats in the chat room. So join in uh, in one way or another on the program tonight. I think we, what we got to do, Jacob, here in the last few minutes of our Bible study is look to the emails that some folks have sent in in dealing with our question. What are some rules you would suggest to resolve possible Bible contradictions? Let's start with uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant, who says one simple Bible rule deals with keeping things in context. And we've mentioned that several times, how important the context of a statement is. He says, be sure the subject matter is the same. Be sure the context of the conversation is between the same people. Is the account under consideration a contradiction or an addition of information from another source? For example, do two do two different authors speak of a similar account, but one of them adds something that the other omitted? Gospel accounts of events dealing with resurrection as an example. 
So Jim mentioned several of those same rules that we just were talking about. Sharon says, uh, what's, uh, to answer your question, what simple rules can you suggest that will help resolve potential Bible contradictions? She says, have faith, be fully persuaded that there is an answer, even if we have not yet found the answer. Preferably study the context, look up meanings of words in original Greek or Hebrew. Our words and meanings have changed through the years. Words also have different meanings in different contexts. When we can't understand, go to God in prayer. Seek those who are more knowledgeable, who might be able to shed light on the things we don't understand. Lay what the person has to say alongside the Scripture to be sure it is in harmony. Check different translations of the Bible. Some are more easy to understand than others. I think those are those are good exa- uh, good rules there, Sharon. And I especially like the one where, you know, don't be uh, too proud to ask for help on Thanks. You know, if you get stymied by a question that someone has posed to you, first of all, I think the first thing we got to say is if someone's challenging us and ask us a question that we can't answer, don't be timid to say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out. I, I think what that does is leave the door wide open for a follow-up study. So, you know, there's there's no shame in doing that. And then, as she says, get some help with from some others. That's that's very beneficial. Maybe maybe somebody else you know has come across that same issue and has done some study and found the answer, or they can help you find the answer. But that's a good rule. You know, if you. I was working on my car and I was having trouble getting uh, a certain part changed out, I would have no hesitation about going to the auto parts store and asking them for advice and help on how to how to work on my car. Maybe the same would be something I was cooking in the kitchen, had having trouble with the recipe. Again, no hesitation. But when we get to the scriptures, for some reason, we hesitate when we have difficulty understanding something. Yeah, shouldn't do it. All right. We got a longer answer. I'm going to try to read this pretty quickly, Jacob, from Patrick in, in Birmingham, uh, Alabama. We haven't heard from Patrick in a while. Patrick, glad you're listening and participating in the virtual Bible study. He says, rule, context. Just about anything can be proven by taking things out of context. I think that's true, by the way. If you, you can just take a phrase out of context and really twist it all around. He says, in biblical interpretation, sometimes reading the surrounding few verses is enough. Sometimes the entire chapter or even the whole book must be read to get the correct context. It's also helpful and sometimes necessary to be knowledgeable about the historical and social context. Idioms must be understood. For example, when David told Uriah to go home and wash his feet, he did not literally mean to go home and take a bath. This was a figure of speech. David was telling Uriah to go home and have sexual relations with his wife. Sometimes the context is in reference to time. When did a thing take place? Something may be true at one time and untrue at another. I think, by the way, I think that the point Patrick makes there about idioms is very important. Jacob, we could speak if there was a foreigner trying to learn the English language, and maybe he was pretty familiar with the basics of English. Still yet, as native speakers, you and I could talk back and forth using idioms and expressions that would completely befuddle that person. He may know technical English, but he doesn't understand the use of our idioms and phrases. And and we got to understand that about the Bible, too, understand that sort of thing in the Bible. Good point, Patrick. He says it must also be kept in mind that not every statement in reference to a topic must contain every fact about the topic. I might say I went to the movie and later say Michael and I went to the movie. Then someone might say you're contradicting yourself. First, you said you went to the movie alone. Later, you said someone else was with you. This is often the nature of alleged Bible contradictions. Because I failed to mention my friend Michael in my first statement does not negate the fact that he was with me. It is simply an absence of truth, not a contradiction, or absence of fact, I might say, rather than truth, not a contradiction. He says, similarly, two statements can be true simultaneously without contradicting each other. A very simplistic example might be, Rachel has blue eyes and Eric has blue eyes. It would be ridiculous to say you're contradicting yourself. Rachel and Eric can both have blue eyes. 
but some people make such assertions concerning biblical truth. Um, regarding numbers, the Bible uses numbers the same way that modern people do. Sometimes the number exact, sometimes it's an estimate, sometimes it's a hyperbole, sometimes it's uh, symbolic. Take, for example, the question of how many years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. Was it really 40? Actually, it was 38. I'd have to look at that. I'm not, I'm unfamiliar with that. That's interesting. He says, was it, actually, was it really 40? Actually, it was 38. But sometimes it is referred to as 40 years. How many people ate the loaves and fishes? Was it 5,000? No more or less. One place it says about 5,000. In another, it says there were about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. There may have been 15 or 20,000. What about the 144,000 mentioned Revelation? Is it exactly 144,000 or is this symbolic for something? I think the answer is the the former. It's symbolic. He says regarding time among the Jews, a part of the day, a part of a day or part of a year was counted as a whole day or year. This is why sometimes adding years or days together does not, not always come up with an accurate total. Reading the details in addition to the raw numbers is often necessary to get the correct total. Gematria is essentially Jewish numerology. It is used in many places, and words often have additional numeric or symbolic meaning based upon their numerical value. The list goes on and on. But in short, correct, correctly understood, the Bible has no error or contradiction. Very good, Patrick. Well said. Thank you for your comment tonight. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. You posed a potential contradiction in your email today. Yeah, here's one that I put out there just to see if we could use some of the rules that we assembled. Um, John 1, verse 18 no man has seen God at any time. Exodus 33, verse 20, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. All right? So no man can see God at any time. If you see, you can't see God and live. God said as much. Yeah. Then Genesis 32, 30 says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Well, wait a minute. Does that contradict? One place says that you can't see God and live, and, another, and but Jacob said he had seen God and lived. What's the story there? How would we answer it? We got some. I think we got some answers. Let's see. What Jim our, in Mount Pleasant says here is an excellent case in point in Genesis 32. Jacob is speaking about his wrestling with an angel, yet he considered it as wrestling with God. Thus he spoke of seeing God in Exodus 33. God is speaking to Moses. The rest of the account tells us Moses saw only the backside of God, not his face. So when we read John 1, verse 18, that no man has seen God at any time, it is talking about seeing God face to face, which is true that no man has ever seen God face to face, not Jacob and not Moses, no contradiction. Okay. Matt in uh, Berksville, Kentucky writes in, he says, seems to me no man can see God with the human eye. The human eye was made only to see the physical world. Must, one must be released from the body to see into the other realm without divine assistance. Flesh and blood can't enter the spiritual realm, so man cannot see God in his true form as he is a spirit being. However, God has manifested himself to man at different times in various forms. He manifested himself in some way to satisfy Moses' curiosity. Jesus took on fleshly form and came to this earth. So God can manifest himself in ways that man can visibly see, but not in his true form. God also at times has worked miracles in which man was allowed to see things he would not normally see. For example, the donkey was made to see the angels before Balaam. Shepherds saw angels at Christ's birth. Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6.17, his eyes were opened to see the unseen. Stephen, before his death, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God in Acts 7 verse 55. So I think the idea is we cannot normally see such with the human eye, but that does not mean that God in some way has not made some exceptions. Actually, I think that Matt's on to the answer there. 
when when in several instances it says that people saw God, they were seeing not God as the true spirit being that he is flesh and blood can't see a spirit being. But they were seeing manifestations that God presented. Jacob, for instance, saw an angel of God. Moses at the burning bush saw this bush burning and it did, it wasn't consumed in Genesis chapter, uh, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter three, verse two. He saw the burning bush. He spoke to God in the burning bush. And it says in Genesis, excuse me, I'm saying Genesis, I mean Exodus, Exodus three, verses two through six, that he saw God. He didn't see God. He saw the manifestation of God. Job, after Job in the book of Job had said some rash things that he probably shouldn't have said, in chapter 38 of Job, beginning at verses 1 through 4, he saw a whirlwind. God made a a manifestation of a whirlwind. Job said he saw God in the whirlwind. He didn't see God. He saw the manifestation. What was the the passage you referenced? Job 38, verses 1 through Uh, 4. Okay, Jared also in the chat room sends in Job 42, verse 5. When Job is speaking to the Lord, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. So, again, all right. We saw manifestations of God, not God literally. All right. Uh, Sharon sends in uh, this answer. She says, I'm looking forward to hearing this discussion. It seems to me God was seen in some form a human could understand. We can't look upon God as he truly is, a spirit, but it seems to have been a representation of God. Jesus was God, and anyone who saw Jesus saw God although they didn't actually see God the Spirit. Okay. She says, does this make any sense? I think so. I think that's the point we're making here. And Patrick says this is easy to answer. Jacob believed that he saw God, but he didn't. He saw an angel. He saw a, a representation or manifestation of God, not God literally or actually. All right. So, so good, good responses. So I think, I think our listeners are, are showing that they have certainly, before we ever mentioned them, they understood the same rules we're talking about tonight. And that you've got to make application of those in in these various instances. All right. So, but even if we did already understand it, it was a good review to understand uh, principles we can use to resolve apparent Bible contradictions. We didn't get to Dan Barker's yeah, uh, list. We but, got a uh, long, you know, we might do that sometime. We might take his. He, he's got a long list. I think the, he's got fifteen or seventeen here. Different things he says are contradictions in the in the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And, of course, he thinks he's got a, a a one-two punch going there. If he can knock out both the Scripture and the resurrection or cause people to, to lose faith in, in those two things, then that would be that truly would be devastating. This so would be a good discussion. We'll save that somewhere. article and we'll make, it, make a study of that sometime. All right. Well, uh, good discussion tonight. Before we conclude uh, the last virtual Bible study for 2009, we do need to make an announcement, an announcement we make every year, but uh, need to make it again. We're late getting this out, but every year the College View Church publishes a Bible reading calendar, uh, which will help you read through the whole Bible in a year, or you can just choose to read just the New Testament or just the Old Testament. Uh, it has daily Bible readings for five days of the week. Monday. Th- that's one of the things I really like about this schedule. It's Monday through Friday. Well, if something happens and I miss a day during the week, I've got Saturday or even Sunday to catch up. And so uh, the the system uh, is really devised to help people keep up with their Bible reading and get keep current and get through the Bible in a year. And we've printed those again this year. They're a little different. Mark Roberts down in Texas is the one that puts together this reading schedule, and he's updated it. And so it actually goes in a little different order uh, but he says it's more accurate to keep the chronology of all the Bible together. And so you read parts of the You're not going to read goes. front to back. No, you read parts that go together chronologically. I, I like that too. 
All right. Uh, so how do we get a free calendar? S- send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. And say, send me the Bible reading calendar. But, but you got to add your snail mail address. Or here's an option that we've been able to do this year because for the first time this year, I've got the calendar in Microsoft Word format. And if you send me your email and say, just send me the file, I can send you a, a Word document and you can have it on your computer or you can print it off yourself. So either send us your snail mail address or just say, send me the file. No charge. No charge. All free. All right. And so if you'd like the Bible reading calendar, please send us an email. Well, Dad. Thank you for a good hour and a good year on the virtual Bible. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, We are uh, now, what, four and a half years into the virtual Bible study? So there's a lot. We keep reminding people there's a lot of resource on our archive page. Go there if you've got some things that you're studying, questions that you have. We may very well have already talked about on the virtual Bible study. Or if you've got a question that you want to suggest for a study, send that to us. We've talked for four and a half years on the virtual Bible study, but still a lot of material to cover And so we look forward to discussing that in the coming year, but we would like your help. Let us know if you have any topic you'd like to have discussed on the program or if you have any suggestion on how we can make the program better. We'd love to hear from you. Well, Dad, look forward to talking to you in 2010. That's right. And we look forward to talking to you on the next edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.